0: Now, if the heavens do decide to fall this morning and it hails, Nate will pay for the damages for picking (laughs) that song. (laughs) So um, hopefully that won't happen. So this morning, uh, we continue our journey in uh, Matthew, and if you notice this week, we sent out an email just giving you guys a heads up. Uh, I won't be putting the text on the wall behind me um, anymore. Uh, So if you need a Bible, uh, there are some Bibles uh, scattered throughout, Uh, but the intention here um, is so that you will become accustomed in knowing where we are in in the book of the Bible, where things are in Scripture, as well as just being in the habit and just practicing, opening up the Scripture, reading the context, because I don't put the context up there, so now you, you, you will know where the passage is at. Um, In the canon and and so forth and you will see what comes before what comes after it and it's just a healthy thing to practice to actually be in the word whether it's in your book or even if it's on an app on your phone and so our our text today is Matthew 17 uh, 14 through 27. Um, and if you are using a pew bible that would be page uh, 694 Uh, so you can turn there and also if you have trouble finding a passage uh, most bibles have a table of contents in the front Um, I think a lot of people just kind of forget that I often forget that as I'm trying to find what I need there's a table of contents to help direct you uh, to where the book is at because every bible especially if you use multiple bibles I mean the page numbers are always different um, and if you do have like a reason um, or a thought as to why it might be beneficial to put the text on the wall, uh, you know, let me know. Um, I'm open. Um, I just can't think of one uh, right now beyond beyond convenience, and I really want to help um, equip us um, and all of you all to um, use God's word more effectively and uh, be, just be more comfortable in handling it. So our, again, like I, I said, our text is in Matthew 17. Uh, Gospel of Matthew is in the New Testament. It's going to be the last third of your Bible. Um, we will also be turning, though, today to Daniel 7, 13, 14 and Colossians 1, 15, 20 uh, during our second main point, just to give you a heads up there, and I'll help guide you there when the time comes. In this text, we are going to see today that our faith rooted in gospel understanding ultimately is revealed in the little things. We are going to break this text down today in three sections. The first to deal with the failure of the disciples in regards to their little faith and the little understanding that they had about the passion experience. And then the final section will help us understand that if our faith and understanding is appropriate and right rather than lacking in wrong, in other words, not little, then it will show itself in how we handle the little things in life. So let's go ahead, go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to read uh, verses uh, 14 through 20, and again, Matthew should be near the end of your uh, book. 17 verses 14 through 20. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed— You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace this morning. We ask that you will speak to us through your text by the power of the Spirit, illuminate to us what we need to see, help us humble ourselves before you, help us slay the idols in our hearts, Father, help us wrestle. With them confidently, trusting in your grace, and help us love one another and hold one another accountable, and to walk and have a desire to walk with one another, Father, uh, full of grace and love and truth, so that you may be glorified and we may be edified. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, real quick, before we jump into this passage, you might notice uh, in most of your Bibles, when you look at verse twenty and you look at the next verse, it's twenty-two. Twenty-one in many Bibles is missing unless you have a King James Version Bible. Now your version should have a note or maybe brackets around twenty-one explaining why it has brackets or why twenty-one is missing. Verse twenty-one, if it is in your Bible, should say something like, "But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting," and that's exactly kind of what Mark nine twenty-nine says because this account in Mark in Matthew seven seventeen fourteen is Mark's account in Mark 9, 9-14. So you might be asking, well, why is it not in most versions? Because most likely it's not original. Not original to Matthew. It's original to Mark, absolutely. But the earliest and oldest and best manuscripts do not contain this verse in the Gospel of Matthew. So that's why many versions, when they have it um, in Matthew, they'll put a note or something saying, we don't believe it to be original. If it's a good Bible, it will explain why. It'll get into the what's called the textual criticism of it, because it was common, especially in the early days, for copyists to take from other gospels to kind of fill in the gaps, and often they would annotate that. Uh, so, and King James pulls that from a later manuscript, because King James is based off of later, not older, or earlier manuscripts. Now, King James Version Advocates often will use this verse. It's one of the many that they will say this is why we need to use King James only. But King James has its own issues. Daniel 3.25 is a good example. Uh, When the king looks at the three Jews in a fiery furnace, and he says the man in there looks like, this. um, and the King James says the son of God, but the Hebrew translates it as the son of the gods. King James just uses an interpretive slant um, to to describe it as being Jesus. But with any translation, we must approach it humbly and and, and look at it and study it diligently, not assume that it's perfect because no English translation is perfect. They all have their issues and concerns and strengths and weaknesses. So now that we got that out of the way, that was, as Dave said last week, we parked the side of the road there for a little bit. We can get on with the journey. That should be the only side parking I'll be doing, uh, Lord willing. So this situation, uh, like I said before, this is the account that we also have in Mark 9, 14. And we have this father, he comes to Jesus, and his son has had seizures. He's, uh, he's an epileptic of some sort, and the seizures have given him such issues that it's actually put him in, in harm's way. He can get burned or possibly even drowned. And the disciples, and remember, it's not all 12 disciples. Remember, remember, we just had the Mount Transfiguration, and we had three disciples go, out, go up there of Jesus, Jesus, uh, James, John, and, and Peter, so we have nine disciples who this boy was brought to, and these nine were unable to heal the boy, and Jesus is frustrated here. He uses some strong language. He's talking about the disciples and those around him. He includes them in this when he says, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? I mean, think about it. He just had his transfiguration experience he just spoke with moses and elijah and so now he comes down and he has to deal with this his disciples who have been given authority to heal and cast out demons since matthew 10 and have been doing this since matthew 10 are unable to do this one one that they should be able to do and the humanity of jesus he's he's getting a little frustrated like you should know better you should be able to do this and he's frustrated so jesus does it himself. He heals the boy himself and he casts out or he rebukes the demons. And so the disciples, they approach Jesus privately, perhaps maybe a little embarrassed, and they ask him, well, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus here says, well, it's due to your little faith. Now, what is meant by this? See, Jesus calls the faith of disciples little, but yet he tells them that if your faith is the size of a grain of a mustard seed, Whatever you ask for, it will, it will be done for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. You tell a mountain to move, and it will move. So yeah, he says their faith is little, but yet he uses something that's incredibly little to describe the kind of faith they should have. So what is meant here? Well, first, let's deal with the mustard seed. Is Jesus saying here that if our faith is big enough, we can move the earth? When we talk about moving mountains, when Jesus says you can move this mountain from here to there, he's talking about overcoming problems. Moving mountains was a proverbial expression for overcoming difficulties and problems in life. But how much faith is a mustard seed? Or how much more is faith when it's the grain of of the seed of a mustard seed versus the little faith that the disciples had? Well, the issue here, it's not about quantity. We have to understand that. It's not about quantity. It's never about quantity when it comes to your faith. Rather, it's about quality. Is it effective faith or is it ineffective faith? A grain of mustard seed is small, yet that is all the faith we need. And at the same time, Jesus tells his disciples it's because of the little faith. The little faith, uh, the Greek word there, what a, the nuance there in this context is not quantity, but it's quality. Or in other words, it means poor in faith or a poverty of faith and the sense that the faith was inferior, insufficient, and lacking. But not lacking in quantity, lacking in quality. See, the disciples' faith in this moment was not rooted in the right place. They went into this situation confident of themselves. Because after all, they, they have been rebuking demons before, And they've healed others, so why not this time? Jesus is away on the mountain with the other three. The nine are left behind, like, we can do this. Dad's gone. I got this. And when they go in, they're unable to. And and why not? Well, Jesus, in Mark's account, and this is part of the reason why uh, oftentimes verse 21 was added to Matthew, because it helps us understand the passage a little bit. Jesus says, because this one required prayer. This one can only be removed with prayer. Meaning, Disciples, when they engaged in this, they didn't go in with prayer. We must never think that we can engage in the work of the kingdom, the work of the Father, apart from the prayer. As if we are the ones bringing something to the table. And it's not that prayer is powerful. We have to be careful here. Prayer is not powerful. It's it's the God to whom we pray that is powerful. In praying, we are a, we are able to talk to that God who is powerful, and yes, it is important and beneficial, and it's a blessing to pray, but prayer itself, what we say is not what's powerful. This, this is where uh, that popular book, um, the, the Prayer of Jabez, is real popular, maybe 10, 15 years ago. I'm hoping not so much anymore, but it talks about that, that prayer of Jabez back in Genesis, A little line, and, and in that book, it says, if you say these words every day, you get to unlock the Magical blessing box of God, and that's not true. Nowhere in scripture does it say, repeat these words after me, and you will receive this. Nowhere. Remember, the power of prayer is not in the prayer, but it's in the God to whom we pray. It is the object of which we place our faith that holds the power, not the amount of faith that we think we have. This is where the uh, health and wealth and word of faith movement goes wrong. They think you just need to have more faith, and that's not the issue. In this account, this is the account in in Mark's account, the father tells Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's how much faith we need. The point to where we recognize I struggle to believe, help me with my unbelief. That's the little amount of faith we need, and praise God for that. Because whatever faith we think we have, More than likely, we have far less than we think we really do. We must not think too highly of ourselves and think that we have enough faith. Because I guarantee you, when the time comes, we will never have enough faith. And thank God it's not about the amount of faith. It's about whom we put our faith in This is why, like, for me, I I pray that when I come to preach, that I never grow comfortable in my abilities to deliver a sermon to you all or in my preparation, that I will never one Sunday morning wake up and think, I got this. I I pray rather that I'm always uncomfortable and that I'm always trusting on the power of the Spirit and not on my own God-given abilities or what he has blessed me with, but it's purely on him. And that's the temptation of man is that we think, I got this. We can do this, especially in America. And that's what the disciples were doing here. They thought they had it. And so they would go to this demon-possessed boy thinking they had it apart from praying to God for assistance. Likewise, this is what we must do in all things. In all things. True faith, that of a... Oh, let me back up real quick here. I'm going to have my notes. When Jesus says that when you have this kind of faith, that nothing will be impossible for you. We have to be careful with this, all right? This is not teaching the name acclaim, and claim of theology. This uh, health and wealth, love this verse. Word of faith movement, love this verse. But when you have this kind of faith, the things you desire to do will be in accordance to the Lord's will, not your own. Big difference there. And it's the Lord's will that will be accomplished whatever that might be. This is not a kind of faith that gives you a creative license to determine your lot in life. It doesn't give you the license to get blessings and and wealth in your life and not to suffer. If anything, this is the kind of faith that leads you to suffering, that leads you to sacrificial love. And when you do those things, you will see the impossible happen because you're going to see unregenerate hearts become regenerates and know Christ. You're going to see those who are blind to see the truth. You're going to see those who are walking in darkness to walk in light. And that's ultimately the big impossibility in our lives. True faith, that of a mustard seed, is found in a life that is bathed in fellowship with God. It is a faith that's found in a life that's marked by prayer, both privately and publicly, publicly. And we pray not in order to get something. We pray as a result of being in fellowship with the Father. Our fellowship with the Father is what draws us to our knees. Because when we're in fellowship with Him, we love to talk to Him. We love to spend with Him, even when we don't know what we're going to talk about, even if what we think we're talking about is petty. How often does a little child love to just ramble on to their parents? Or they love to go to the store with them. They don't care what they're doing. They just like to spend time with dad or mom. That's what prayer needs to be. When we foster that communication, you're more likely to go to the Father in times of need, and you're more likely to obey the Father when temptation comes because you remember those conversations that you've had with the Father. Fellowship is the cause. Prayer is the effect. It's not the other way around. A faith that, uh, true faith is a faith that's found in life marked by studying his word recognizing that the sword of the spirit is the word of God and that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. It is faith found in a life marked by obedience and willful sacrifice out of love for God and our neighbors. This faith is not one that can be compartmentalized. You know, I struggle with that word so much, more so than I do with Hebrew and Greek words. I even listen to it on YouTube on how to pronounce it and I still, it's a hard word for me to say but I hope you understood what I was trying to say there. You cannot compartmentalize this faith. You can't divide it up. I'll just give you the definition of that word. You can't split it up into sections. It's not reserved for for Sunday mornings only, or only when you're engaging in kingdom work. If you're a believer, your whole life is kingdom work, all of it. Remember we talked about this in Matthew 16? You, to follow Jesus, to be one of his own, to share in the kingdom, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's your whole life. Your whole life is given to his work. Whatever that might be and wherever that takes you, whether it's school, work, shopping, you carry this faith as you walk in fellowship with the Father. And as disciples, we do nothing in this life apart from the kingdom. Because whatever we do is kingdom business, because we are ambassadors of The kingdom, it all matters, all of it, even the little things. So Jesus then goes on to teach once more on the very thing of which our faith is founded on, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is going to be verses 22 through 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So here, the disciples, they've just experienced a little faith. Now they're experiencing a little understanding. And once more, just as in chapter 16, Jesus is preaching on what's about to happen, his passion experience. Now, Interestingly here, the word delivered here um, also means to be betrayed, to be handed over. And perhaps your version says that, that Jesus will be handed over. Someone will give Jesus up. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus talks about his suffering at the hands of men will be done because of betrayal, and that somebody will hand him over. Later, he will mention that those men that he's handed over to his the son of the, uh, the chief chief priests, and then later he will explain that it's Judas who will betray him. Now, this is only two verses, but I want us to notice the language here: the Son of Man being delivered into the hands of men. We have to ask ourselves well, what is meant here by Son of Man, and, and what could have the disciples been thinking of when he said Son of Man? So, to help us understand this title and how it was understood um, in accordance to Jewish tradition of the first century. Um, let us turn to Daniel uh, chapter 7, verse 13, 14. Um, and as you turn there, it's going to be to your left into the Old Testament. Um, not quite halfway through the book. If you hit Isaiah, you've gone too far. So, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13, 14. Um, and here, um, Son of Man is seen as an eschatological figure. Uh, when I say eschatological, I'm meaning end of days. Um, so let's go ahead and let's turn there and read it. If you hit Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, you've gone too far. It's just to the right of Ezekiel. So this is 7 verses 13 through 14. And you can also use your ears and listen along. And this is Ezekiel talking, and just before this, he gives—he um, talks about how he sees the ancient of days. He sees God reigning, right? He sees him reigning, and now he talks about the Son of Man. He says, "I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom." that all peoples, nations, and language to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the person who will be handed off to men, to people, not to God, and not to reign, but to suffer and die. This is kind of what Dave was talking about last week, how Old Testament has prophecies of the Messiah being a suffering servant and a conquering king. Here we clearly see somebody who's going to have a dominion, everlasting reign, and so forth, but yet we have Jesus talking about how he has to suffer. And this is why it's hard for the disciples to hear, hard for them to understand beyond the fact that Jesus is close to them, but they, they are, they're picking up, as we've noticed. This is the Son of Man here. He's meant to usher in the kingdom. But yet now he's saying he has to be betrayed and given to men and and to suffer and, and to die and to raise on the third day. The Son of Man is supposed to have dominion over all things. He's supposed to be presented before the Father. His reign is to be forever, his dominion everlasting for all nations and all peoples. And yes, Jesus mentions the resurrection here. But apparently, for whatever reason, the disciples didn't understand it. They didn't hear it. They were still deeply distressed. They didn't get it. And, and we know that they didn't get it because, well, they weren't waiting for him at the tomb on the third day, were they? Even the women, when they went to the tomb, they, were, they went there to continue finishing the anointing job with spices. And in Mark's account, Mark uh, specifically says um, the disciples were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask him. See, what hasn't happened here yet for the disciples is Colossians 1.15.20 hasn't been written. And the understanding of that text hasn't even been begun to be conceived. So let's go ahead. Now this time we're going to go to the right. And this is the last time. Make sure you mark Matthew if you want to go back to it. Colossians is going to be to the right of Matthew. um, And it's just on the other side of uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And then you have Colossians. So I had to look that up this morning in case you're wondering. I don't know the order of the book. I didn't go to Juana, so I don't know the order of my books um, as well as I perhaps ought to. So Colossians 15 through 20. An interesting thing about Paul's letters, they are arranged by size, in case you're wondering. So they are biggest letter of Paul, Romans is first, uh, followed by Corinthians and so forth. And it's based off of size, just just a little tidbit there. That's how it helps me. Anyway, I'm getting, maybe I pulled off the side of the road there. Dave's habits are rubbing off. All right. So Colossians 115 through 20. And this is what we call a, a, a Christological hymn or Christological passage, meaning it focuses on who Jesus is as Christ. Um, and many scholars don't believe that Paul is the author of this. He actually took this uh, from the practice of the church and inserted it into his letter because it's true, and it's, and it's, it's true. So that's why he added it in there, and it's edifying. So let's go ahead and read it. He writes, he, this is Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, in that expression that talks about spiritual powers, all things were created through, through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now that's a passage that's worth memorizing, especially if if you're looking for something, I would commend that to you. So here the Apostle Paul shows how the death of Christ is what makes him preeminent in all things. He's the firstborn of creation, not meaning that he was the first created. That's a position of rank, that he, he's the first of all, of all things. He's number one. He's the son of God, second person of the Trinity. And it is through the cross that the son of man is given dominion over all things. That's what the disciples didn't know. They knew the prophecy of the son of man, but what the prophecy they include there in Daniel was the need for the cross. What allows Jesus to be presented before the Ancient of Days is the blood, his blood on the cross and him being resurrected so that he may be the firstborn of the dead, so that he may be preeminent in all things. This is how he gets dominion and that's why he now sits at the right hand of God the Father and he is king of kings, lord of lords. See, this has to happen because the first man, Adam, he was given reign over creation, right? Him and Eve were both given the image of God Adam was told to subdue. Adam and Eve were both told to subdue, fill the earth, multiply it, fill it, and and to steward, to serve it, to co-reign with God over creation. But through his reign, the curse came. Sin came in, thus causing him to be cast out of his role and being subjected to the curse as consequence. Therefore, reconciliation has to happen between man and God in order to end the curse and break the bonds of death and sin. And this happens through who Paul calls the last Adam, that's Jesus. That is Jesus Christ by his blood on the cross. No one else has and no one else can reconcile us with the Father. There is no gospel apart from Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. This is the, there's no gospel with uh, Allah, there's no gospel through Buddha, whatever Joseph Smith says, even the Pope can't save you and what he teaches, it's not of the gospel. And this is the proper and right understanding of the suffering of Jesus. See, the necessity of it to restore all creation to its rightful and intended place, along with man as its ruler. This is the purpose of Jesus' coming. The second advent, and, and listen, the second advent is not about doing away with creation, right? It's not Jesus, when he comes back, when God comes back, new heaven, new earth, he's not going to do away with everything He'd start over. He's restoring, he's redeeming creation back to its original purpose and intent. What, G, what God created in the beginning in Genesis 1, it was good. It was very good. And he's not gonna just do away with it as if it's scraps. He's gonna restore it. This is why Paul in Romans 8 talks about how creation groans and, and yearns and longs for the adoption of the sons of God. Because when that happens, then creation is restored. Creation wouldn't be longing for if creation is only going to be thrown in the trash and never exist again. No, God is going to restore it in a beautiful, wonderful way. That's, that's what should excite us. When we, when we think about what's to come, it's not just heaven in some spiritual realm or something that's completely foreign to us. It's this. I mean, take a look, look at the trees. These trees are going to pop in a way that they can't pop here on earth in their colors. No allergies. No bugs. Imagine walking through the woods and not having to worry about yellow jackets. I'm excited about that. Like, they're going to be our friends in some way. Like, I have a hard time comprehending that, but I'm excited about it because I, I think they're a pure evil. But God's grace is amazing. So that, that's like we get a taste of it for what's to come by our experience here. Think about the Grand Canyon and seeing the Grand Canyon with eyes that are glorified in a glorified world with colors, no pollution. It's a per- creation is perfect. I mean, that's exciting. This is what makes us homesick. This is how we live. This is why it should come out and when we talk to people and, and when we miss it. Just like when I talk about Maine, because I, I miss it. We have this, we talk about the things we love or yearn for. This is what we have to look forward to. And this is the gospel, and this only happens by the suffering death resurrection of Jesus Christ and recognizing that he right now reigns and that one day he will come in his fullness of his glory with his father's glory and of the rest of the kingdom so if we have this understanding in which our faith must be rooted in then it will be seen in the little things in our lives today let's go ahead and finish uh reading uh verses 24 through 27 back in Matthew when they came to Capernaum the collectors of the two drachma tax, went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, this account here is unique to Matthew's gospel. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think Matthew would have a tax collector story in his gospel? He himself is a tax collector, right? And I think this is cool because it kind of helps us relate with Matthew, right? Because he's a real person. and He was a tax collector. So unlike the other uh, gospel authors, Matthew's like, I'm including this because I particularly— prefer this story when it happened. So he obviously enjoyed it and shared it with us. So the tax collectors, they have a question about the drachma tax, and you can find that, we're not turning there, but you can find that in Exodus 30, uh, verses 11-16. It's referred to as the census tax there, and it was asked of all males, about 20 or older, to pay. The tax was a half shekel per person, which at one point was paid with a double drachma coin which is why we get the name for it, drachma tax, two drachma tax. And that coin was meant to um, pay for the uh, service at the ten of Meeting. But now without the Tent of Meeting, first century Israel, it's, it's used for the temple. And also, they don't have the double drachma coin in the first century anymore. Um, they were no longer in circulation. Um, so the coin here uh, would be found would be a stator, which is a silver coin, um, which was a four drachma coin, so it's worth twice. Um, and that covers the tax for two people. Um, and so Jesus tells him um, for Peter, hey, go, you can go pay for this by going to fish, by catching a fish and a bee in its mouth. Now, we don't know if this, the miracle here, or if it is a miracle of uh, Jesus knowing that the fish that Peter would catch would have the coin in it, or if Jesus put the coin in the fish's mouth. We're not sure. Coins were commonly found in fish's mouth. So it it could be either one. Either way, this is what happened. It's how it happened. So Peter gets the coin and uh they pay it. But in this opportunity, Jesus uses it to teach Peter a lesson. He says, Who's, who do the kings of the earth, who do they have pay the taxes? Their sons or others? And Peter answers rightly, others. And Jesus says, well, then the sons are free. See, this tax wasn't one. It wasn't required of everyone. Uh, it was a tax that um, originally would only be paid once in a lifetime. Uh, some Jews paid it annually. Some Jews refused to pay it at all. Um, rabbis were exempt from paying this tax, and Jesus was viewed as a rabbi, though not formally trained, probably could have made that argument. But he didn't. But here, Jesus, he takes a step further. And he says, from whom do the kings get taxes from? Not from their kids. And Jesus is saying, well, then the sons are free. Jesus is making a statement here. He's saying, you know, God, who instated this tax, I'm his son, I don't have to pay this. But in order not to offend them, Let's pay it anyway. And this is significant. Because if you've been paying attention to Matthew's gospel, Jesus, he's not worried about offending people. At least it doesn't seem like it, right? I mean, in Matthew 15, Jesus offends the Pharisees from Jerusalem, the religious leaders, national religious leaders of the days. He offends them. And he's just like, let them be. Let the blind lead the blind. And these Pharisees, I mean, these are people who in society are viewed with respect, adoration, But here, some tax collectors come to him, and Jesus doesn't want to offend them. Tax collectors are a bad reputation. They're not respected. They're looked down upon. So why is Jesus now all of a sudden concerned? Well, ultimately, Jesus is always concerned. But there are some instances where the offense cannot be avoided, should not be avoided when it comes to gospel proclamation, gospel truth, But other times where it most certainly can be and ought to be avoided. When Jesus says offense here, he's using the Greek word, or at least Matthew's using the Greek word, skandalon. And that means an offense that trips up. It's a stumbling block. It hinders somebody. It injures somebody from getting to somewhere. And so Jesus doesn't want these tax collectors to be tripped up by this moment. So what can we learn from this? Well, I think first and I think this is perhaps the most straightforward, um, is we don't have to fully or support all things our church or denomination does with its money to support it. There were clearly things the temple was doing that Jesus did not approve of, but yet Jesus was fine paying the temple tax. I think this is a clear and basic lesson. I also think it extends to paying taxes to a government that might be pagan, and what they use the money for is, is just horrible. And we see this later in Matthew 22 when Jesus says, render to God what's God and to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we'll talk about that more there. So I I think this is true um, even in this uh, um, particular example. I don't think this lesson is merely about giving money to the temple uh, because of how Jesus used the general um, expression of kings of the earth I think he's talking about this principle extends to all things so I think he's saying it's okay to pay taxes even if the government that's over you is using that money to do horrible things even if it's to fund abortions and praise God that we live in a society where we can vote and we have a say and we can we can help determine through a political albeit flawed and perhaps corrupt process to try to impact how that money's spent but there they couldn't And the Roman government did far worse things than, at least as far as I know, than what the American government has done. Um, And Jesus saying, you still pay it to them. Um, So do not think that we should ever not pay taxes. I think scripture clearly teaches that we ought to and should. And in part, because we don't want to give offense. Second, we must not let little things get in the way of our gospel witness. Paul, at the end of First Corinthians nine twelve, um, he says, "We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We're willing to put up with anything as long as it's for the gospel." And J.C. Ryle he sums it well up well with this quote. And listen here, I think I have it on this slide. There are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to requirements which they may not thoroughly approve. Rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ, God's rights undoubtedly we ought never to give up, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. It may sound very fine and seem very heroic to be always standing out tenaciously for our rights, but it may well be doubted with such a passage as this, whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. And I I think for most of us, especially Americans, American Christians, we were horrible at this. You go on social media, it's obvious, quite often in conversations. Let me give you some practical examples. I'll give you a a very straightforward example here. Property tax exemption for churches, Right? What would happen if we lose it? I mean, some churches, some people think that that would be a big deal. But if God's providing everything, he provided a shekel to Peter, won't he provide for the churches as well? And I think it'd be a good thing. It would make it easier for us to find a piece of land to buy because then the village doesn't have to worry about losing tax money. God still provides, so you lose the tax benefit. I mean, I think it's, it's a question of our faith. What do we really believe? Now, let me give you... A big example here, and for some of you, this is gonna, this is gonna ruffle some feathers. All right. Now, I say this um, <laughs> because I love you. It's not, it's not gonna be that bad. Um, I think this is gonna be more towards the men, perhaps. Um, the Second Amendment. Now, I love the Second Amendment. I'm a veteran. I appreciate the Second Amendment. One day when I can afford it, I want to have my own sidearm. You know, I, I want, I, I love, I, lo- I love, I love guns. Okay, I love shooting them. I love how America is um, able to have that unofficial military. It's, it's a deterrent. I, I, think, I think they're a blessing in many ways. But the right to bear arms, is that a hill for a Christian to die on? Ponder that. When I was at the conference in the EFCA National Conference, some of the foreign EFCA members, that was a question they often ask: What is the love with American Christians and their guns? It wasn't what's the love with Americans and their guns. But why do you Christians die on this hill so often? As if you think it's a biblical right, as if dying to self means you die to self with a gun in your cold hands. Like that's, we've somehow equated it with good Christianity is an American who has his gun. He's got his Bible in his left hand, his gun in his right. But it's not biblical. Now what would happen if through a democratic process, And I personally, I pray that this never happens, but what if it does happen, if the Second Amendment one day were to be amended, repealed, taken away? How would you react? Would you give up your gun as a Christian who is living for eternity? Or would you resist, or maybe even resort to violence? Romans thirteen one seven, first Peter two twelve and to three twenty two both tell us to submit to all institutions of authority. Submit to all of them, with no exceptions there. All of them. So ask yourself, are you more American than you are Christian? Or are you more Christian than you are American? I again I love the Second Amendment. I think it's a great distinction of our culture, but it's not a distinction of our faith. We have to keep those two separate. Now, again, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, you you have that liberty to hold on to your gun. You you have that. But what is more wise, what is more mature, and what what do you think Jesus would have you to do? Ponder that. Especially if it's for the purpose of the gospel when people know that you're a Christian, but you willfully disobey the government. Just think about that. Of course, that's a hypothetical situation. Praise God, that's not upon us at this time. I mean, after all, what are these things in light of eternity? This is why faith that's rooted in the proper understanding of the gospel is seen in the little things. If we could do it in the little things, it'll be easier to do it in the bigger things. We might disagree on what a little thing is and what it is not, but I say in light of eternity, outside of the gospel and the redemption of the lost, what is not little? And I get it. Because even with the Second Amendment, and it could, be, it could be not just Second Amendment, it could be anything. We say it's little, but it doesn't feel little. Like, I know some of you are like, no, I love my Second Amendment right. I get that. And it feels like a big thing. But in light of eternity, I guarantee you, when you're there, you're like, that was a little thing. And right now, we struggle with that. And that's why we walk together through this. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings to, so that we can hear his word, no matter how convicting or troubling it might be for us, and so that we can praise name, that we can engage in fellowship, so we can help each other out when we have these big things in our hearts that we need to give up and view as little things. I want to end with this quote from Carl, Carl F.H. Henry. He said, the early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. I think that's something that we often say today. Look at what the world's coming to. Look at the, it's Pride Month. You know, they want to take, we look at the news, and often the response by Christians is look at what the world is coming to, as if it's a surprise. He goes on, he said, no, they said, the early church said, look what has come into the world. That should be what we are saying. And look at what the early church had to deal with. Roman persecution, beheadings, martyrdoms, crucifixions. They had the vandals. I mean, if they thought the world was going to end, and they did, they had every reason to believe that. Likewise, that should be our focus. Look at what has come into the world, and that will guide in how we act in all the little things. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your willingness to wrestle over with these things that we do, for you to be big, but yet we, we believe them to be small. But man, we struggle to like really just let go. Help us let go. Help us have that perspective that you want us to have and help us be patient with one another. We thank you for the liberty, the freedom that we do have to engage in these conversations, to, to have these differences, Father, and, and, and to be patient with one another as you are with us. Help us be a witness to our neighbors, to our communities. Help us not put anything in their way. Help us not do anything that might be an offense to them. Help us always think about the gospel first and how we can glorify you. And help us die yourselves daily. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory. And, and Father, this week with July 4th, uh, just pray for a safe holiday. Um, that you also be with um, those who struggle with fireworks, especially uh, vets. Father, just ask that you will calm the nerves. Uh, keep them from any triggers that might happen. Um, and just be with America as we celebrate the liberties that you give us and help us use those liberties and those rights with, properly and for your glory, recognizing that our allegiance ultimately belongs to you first and then America. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.